which means the Purple Cup is back. Some of you are excited, some of you are ashamed. All right, let's open up to the book of Ephesians, please, as we continue to work our way through this amazing letter. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18, excuse me, verses 15 through 21. But actually, we're only going to be working with half of this text this morning. This is part one of the sermon, Under the Influence, part one. Uh, The wilderness seems like it's trying to kill us. Certain plants, if we touch them, leave their oil on us, causing us to scratch our flesh down to the very bones. I never understood how bad this was until my wife got poison ivy this last summer, and I think she clawed all the way down to the white meat. Tiny insects will leap off of plants onto our bodies as we walk past them and attach themselves to us by burrowing their way under our skin and sucking our blood, and then as a nice little bonus, a a sweet little gift, they might even leave us with something that would kill us, like Lyme disease, or malaria, or yellow fever, or dengue fever, or the the plague, you know, I mean, the list just goes on. Snakes strike out at us from under rocks, or even the ones that float on top of the water. They can get you when you're in the water. There is no escape. Alligators might try to bite us. Mountain lions might try to attack us. Bears might try to chase us. Oh, my. The deepest into the wilderness that I've ever been was during our time in the Amazon. Our first day in the village where we were supposed to live, I saw a man hobbling down the path on crutches with one leg. I asked the natives why he was on crutches, why he only had one leg, and they said, well, he was bitten by a snake. Okay, now I'm afraid. They also told me that this was not uncommon in the jungle. And the more time I spent in the jungle, the more I would see that this was true. Because I would see people with one leg on crutches more often than one might expect. So as you might expect, I was a little nervous the next week when me and some brothers went out into the brush behind our house to go clear the land. I just kept thinking there was going to be a snake bite coming any moment. Just He was going to jump out and get me. I was going to end up walking around on crutches, missing a half of a leg. And so what that means is that as I was out there working in the brush, the danger caused me to look carefully at how I walked. Every step that I took was taken with intentionality. I wouldn't allow myself to be distracted by music or conversation. I needed to be focused, sober-minded, careful. Here in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul is continuing to teach his readers how to live in light of the gospel. In the first three chapters, he taught us what the gospel was. Now in these last three chapters, he's teaching us how we must live in light of the gospel. And in this morning's text, he's telling us that we must live carefully. Why? Because these days are evil. There's a danger present, so be careful how you walk. Let's read the text for ourselves. Ephesians 5 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk. So don't just look, look carefully. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Lord, would you please use your word this morning? It is a weapon like no other weapon. It can destroy evil and create good. And we pray that it would create good in our hearts this morning and eradicate any trace of sin or unholiness that may be present in our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in my introduction, I tried to show you what it looks like to walk carefully, right? I I tried to pull an example from my own life of what it looks like to walk carefully. You you don't look up at at the sky while you're walking, when you're walking carefully. You don't spend too long looking out at the horizon. You take every step with care and intentionality. You certainly don't stumble around drunk or under the influence of some other substance that will impede your ability to walk and walk carefully. Now, in contrast to that kind of careful walking, I think about the time that I recently spent sitting on the bench over there uh, outside of Mellow Mushroom. I spent about 20 minutes people watching while I was waiting for somebody to show up. And as I was watching these people, I noticed that nobody was really walking carefully at all. Nobody was really given a second thought to how they were walking. Some people were looking at the ground. Other people were carrying on conversations. A lot of people had earbuds in. Some people were walking around like this on their phones. One guy was even reading a book while he was walking up and down the sidewalk. Well, I guess as he's walking, he was on his way to Moe's Barbecue. I wouldn't allow myself to be distracted on my way to Moe's Barbecue. But even as people were crossing the street, they had an air of disinterest. Even though, you know, 2,000-pound cars could be flying at them any moment. They just, they knew the terrain. They knew that there was no sense of danger or risk. They just felt completely uh, comfortable in their environment. And this is how many Christians live today. This is how so many Christians walk today. We live our lives as if the days are not evil. Or as Paul says it elsewhere, as if we're not living in this present evil age. According to Paul, when we live like this, what we're seeing is a demonstration of a fundamental lack of wisdom. Look at verse 5. Excuse me, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Some Christians live in wisdom because they look very carefully at how they walk. Some Christians do not live in wisdom because they're careless in their walk. And those are the two categories that I want us to sort of view the text through this morning, the two lenses through which we will examine the text, the careful Christian and the careless Christian. So, point number one, the careless Christian is a poor steward of time. The careless Christian is a poor steward of time. Look at verse 16. After Paul tells us to look carefully how we walk in verse 16, he says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, last year we had a a Sunday school series on stewardship. We talked about stewarding our bodies, stewarding our authority, stewarding our finances. 
I think the, the best class in that series, if I may say so myself, was the Sunday school class on our stewardship of time. One of the things that we said in that class is that time is a unique resource amongst all the other resources that God has given us. And the reason why is because A, we get so little of it, and B, once it's gone, we never get it back again. Unlike money, unlike our health, unlike many other things. Now Paul says in verse 16 that the days are evil. What Paul is referring to here is the fact that we live in the last days, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And the Bible is sort of ubiquitously speaks about these last days, these evil days, as times of difficulty. Spiritual warfare is at a peak during these times. Satan knows that he's defeated is sort of his one last agonal respiration before he finally makes his way down to the bottom of the pit. And so the activity is heightened. The drama is real. We are at war. And because we're at war, the heat of battle places a significant demand on the way that we use our time. When you're in the thick of war, you just don't waste time. When you're in a battle, when you have a spare minute, you sit down and you disassemble your rifle. You don't go on Twitter. You want to make sure that if there's a firefight coming up, you don't have any sand that's going to block your firing pin. So you sit down, you disassemble your rifle, you clean it, you put it back together again. Now, if you get done with that and you still have some free time, you still just don't waste it. You're going to establish your position. You might change your socks. You might check to make sure you have enough ammunition. You might eat an MRE. You might even take a nap. But when you're in war, when you're in the middle of a battle, even your sleep is not something that is a waste of time. It's something that you do with intentionality. You, you go to sleep because you don't know when you're going to have the opportunity to sleep again. What Paul is saying here is that the days between the resurrection of Jesus and his final return are evil. And we are at spiritual warfare. And if that's true, then we need to use our time like that's true. We need to use our time appropriately. We need to make the best use of our time. So the careful Christian walks in wisdom when it comes to the tiny amount of time that he has been given on this earth. Life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. If you're over the age of 50 or something else, I don't want to date anybody, but, and you, you're thinking about the kids that you raised and now you have grandkids, right? You understand this at a level that people my age and younger can't really understand. When I say life is a vapor, conceptually, I think I understand it, but you really get it. Just yesterday, you were holding that baby in your arms, and now that baby is off having babies of her own. Life is a vapor. We get so little time, and the time that we do get is time that needs to be used well in light of the battle that we are engaged in. So the careful Christian says, my life is short, the days are evil, so I must live my life with intentionality. Now, this is the part of the sermon where everyone expects the preacher to start railing against television watching and social media consumption, and I'm half inclined to do so because it needs to be railed against. I cannot tell you how often I talk to somebody who tells me that they're struggling spiritually. I ask them how much time they spend reading their Bible. They tell me none. I ask them how much time they're spending you know, watching this show or that movie or how much time they just sit around on Facebook or Instagram or whatever the newest thing is and how often they tell me, well, actually, I spend a ton of time doing that. But 
I think that there's a positive vision for the use of our time that will prevent us from being like curmudgeonly and overly negative, but it will also sort of take care of those things. I think making the best use of our time is less about video games and Twitter and more about taking every minute of every day captive for the glory of God. It's just like giving and stewardship and money, right? Christians, when they think about giving, they just want to, how they use their money, they just want to know a number. They want to they wanna know like kind of what's the bare minimum. Like that's why we just keep on using the word tithe even though it's not a New Testament concept because it just gives us a nice, clean, round figure, 10%. I can work with that, right? And when it comes to using our time, we just want to know, just tell me what do I need to do? Just like 20 minutes a day on, on Twitter or like Facebook, maximum 15, an hour, what... But when, when you come to understand what Jesus says about money, it's clear that 10% is nowhere near enough. Every last dollar that you own belongs to Jesus and should be used for the glorification of his name and for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The same thing is true of money. We need not reduce it, excuse me, the same thing is true of time. We don't need to reduce it down to its smallest parts and ask, okay, how much time can I spend doing this and how much time should I not spend doing this? No, every last second of every last minute of every day that you have been given has been given to you for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The days, of, the days are evil, we are at war. So you must treat your time appropriately. In our Sunday school class on time, this is the principle that I gave to the members of our church. I said, in order to make the best use of the time, we must prioritize the things that God prioritizes. That is the governing principle for our time. We must prioritize with our time the things that God prioritizes. So that doesn't mean that you can't ever go on Facebook. It doesn't mean you can't ever have a Netflix binge, you know. It doesn't mean that you can't play video games, but it does mean that if you have an opportunity to serve the church or to study the word and pray or to grow in your faith or to disciple your children or to meet up with an unbeliever for evangelism, it means that those things should crowd Fortnite completely out of your schedule. Some of the older people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Fortnite's a video game. They do the dance from it. Okay. What it means is that there, this should be your priority. And so like, yeah, if there is any time for these things, great, but there probably won't be if you're living your life appropriately in light of the priorities that God has established. I think we have to remember, friends, that one day time as we know it will come to an end because the one who created time will come to usher in his perfect eternal rule. And so careful, careful Christians will strive to use their time that they have well in light of that day when time will no longer exist. Number two, the careless Christian is foolish. That one's a bit on the nose, but I think it works. The, caref- the careless Christian is foolish. In verse 17, you see this second attribute of the careless Christian He doesn't seek to understand the will of the Lord. Look there. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So those who are not seeking to understand the will of the Lord are, in fact, being foolish. Now, when Paul speaks about understanding the will of the Lord, he's not talking about trying to understand the secret will of the Lord. 
Uh, theologians typically talk about the revealed will of the Lord and the secret will of the Lord. We're not going to go super deep into all that. I'm not going to bore you with a big, long thing about it. Basically, what you just need to know is that there are some things that God has made very plain to all people on the earth about his will for our lives, and there are some things that are kind of hard to decipher. He's got, you know, a secret will, and he's got some other, th- you know, what does God want you to do about that girlfriend you're dating? Well, I don't think he says necessarily what to do about what college you're, you're supposed to go to in the Bible. But in the Bible, God has revealed generally things about his will for how we should live our lives in light of his sovereign rule. And I think that that's what Paul is referring to here. I think that Paul is pulling deeply from the language of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And in the wisdom literature literature of the Old Testament, you always see this dynamic at play. You have a wise man who looks at God's word and says, oh, I understand what your will is, and I will live my life in light of that. And then you have the foolish man who ignores God and who ignores God's word and lives according to his own wisdom, according to his own will, his own desires, his own impulses. Proverbs one twenty two speaks against that when it says, how long, O simple ones, now a little translation here, how long, idiot, okay, how long will you love being simple? How long will, will scoffers delight in their scoffer, scoffing and fools hate knowledge. The careful, excuse me, the careless Christian doesn't walk carefully and doesn't even know how to walk carefully because he doesn't understand God's will. And he doesn't understand God's will because he's not seeking it. He's not reading the word. He's not gathering with the church. He's not praying and asking God for wisdom. Rather, he trusts in himself. He leans on his own understanding. His own intuitions are what lead him and guide him. In contrast to that, the careful Christian is marked by a desire to grow in his understanding of God's will. The careful Christian knows that God has revealed his will in his word and he searches it to seek wisdom in applying the truth found therein. Now listen, if in, the, in, in this sermon I cannot uh, spend 30 minutes explaining the will of God and how we should pursue it and understand it, but if you wanna know more about that, uh, I would encourage you to get this book that's in our books all over there. It's $7, won't get it cheaper than that, by Kevin DeYoung. It's called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. I don't think you'll find a better, shorter, easier to read uh, resource for that, so I'd encourage you to go get it from our bookstall after the service. Okay, point number three. The careless Christian places himself under the influence of the wrong things. Man, that's... That's a lot to write down in your notebook. If you're taking notes, the careless Christian places himself under the influence of the wrong things. This was just not my week for alliteration, guys. I I just couldn't find it on this one. So, uh, yeah. Let's look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, here Paul is, he's addressing one issue of debauchery. You know what debauchery is. It's just sinful lifestyle. And one aspect of a sinful lifestyle is drunkenness. And in order for us to live carefully, in order for us to be wise, we need to make sure we understand what Paul is saying here. He could not be any clearer. Do not get drunk. Do not get drunk. Now, we have to be very careful Because we need to also understand what Paul is not saying here. 
Paul is not saying that alcohol is sinful. Paul is not saying that the consumption of alcohol is sinful. Paul is saying getting drunk is sinful. And there is a difference. You should know that the Bible speaks a number of different ways about alcohol. Sometimes it speaks about alcohol neutrally. Sometimes it speaks about alcohol negatively because it leads to drunkenness. But sometimes the Bible also speaks of alcohol in a way, uh, cast it in a positive light as a gift. Let me just read from Joe Thorne, who I think helpfully summarizes the broad way in which the Bible speaks about alcohol. He says the following, In all, there are 247 references to alcohol in Scripture. Forty are negative. That is, they are warnings about drunkenness, potential dangers of alcohol, etc. A hundred and forty-five are positive. That is, alcohol is a sign of God's blessing. It's use in worship. It gladdens the heart. And 62 are neutral. People falsely accused of being drunk or vows of abstinence from alcohol like the Nazarites or whatever. He goes on to say, the Bible is anything but silent on the issue of wine. It, like all alcohol, must be treated carefully, seen as a blessing, and received with thanksgiving among those who drink it, but it must not be abused. I think alcohol is kind of like anger and humor, which we've already talked about so far in the fifth chapter and the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Right? There's nothing inherently sinful about anger. There's nothing inherently wrong about humor, but both of these things are dangerous. They can lead us down the path to sin very easily. The same thing is true of our consumption of alcohol. What that means is that for some people, you should never consume alcohol. If you want to know more about how drinking alcohol relates to others and the the way we can cause people to stumble and that whole thing, we are walking through 1 Corinthians 8 through 11 for the next several months right here Wednesday night at 640. We have that whiteboard over here. Uh, We kind of talked about it a little bit last Wednesday. I think it was really good and really helpful. So if you have more questions about that, I just encourage you to come to our Wednesday night Bible study. Okay. But there is an aspect of alcohol that I think makes it uniquely dangerous. It's ability to intoxicate. That is, once you consume alcohol, you are under its influence. And being under the influence is, I think, the heart of what Paul is talking about in these verses, in verse 18. I think he's talking about the contrast between being under the influence of the Spirit or being under the influence of alcohol. Look at verse 18 again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, so in contrast to filling yourself up with wine, be filled with the Spirit. So you have a choice. In light of these evil days, what are you going to place yourself under the influence of? A substance or under the influence of a person? Under the influence of alcohol or under the influence of the spirit? You can place yourself so much under the influence of a particular thing like alcohol leading to the point of drunkenness that you are in sin because you're not sober-minded. You're not, you're not prepared for battle. You're, you're, you're not cognizant of the reality of these dark and evil days. And you're not under the influence of the Spirit of God. So with that in mind, I think it might be helpful for us to consider some of the reasons why we place ourselves under the influence of drunkenness. You know, I come from a family of, of drunkards. 
and drug addicts. I was a drug addict myself. Why do we do this? Why do we put ourselves under this influence? I have a, a couple uh, of reasons why here. There are probably a million reasons, but I wanted to try to consolidate and condense. So I'm just going to give out two or three this morning. Maybe you'll come up to me after the ser- service and say, Sean, well, actually, I think that, well, yeah, probably that too. I just can't do all of it in one sermon. So the first one is alcohol acts as a sort of social lubricant, right? Many people who struggle with social anxiety, which is just a modern therapeutic term to mean that we're deeply insecure, Right? Many people who struggle with social anxiety find it difficult to relax, to open up, to get in the mix, to, 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 to get to know people when they're sober. But alcohol can remove our social inhibitions. Right? It can give us an artificial sense of confidence. Alcohol can make you know, the most withdrawn person in the world be a blame. That's what it does. So the person who's otherwise withdrawn or nervous in social settings will, after a few drinks, open up. Maybe they'll become the life of the party. But the problem here is that alcohol never really helps people who drink for these reasons. What it usually does is it leaves them feeling more insecure than before because now they have all the previous insecurities that they've experienced, but they feel like, oh, I found a crutch that can help me do better, and now I can't function in these social settings unless I have that alcohol, unless I'm buzzed. In contrast to this false sense of confidence that we can receive from this substance, being filled with the Spirit will actually give us a true sense of confidence, right? As we're filled with the Spirit, we come to understand that our identity is rooted in Christ and in Christ alone and not in the opinions of other people. On top of that, when we are filled with the Spirit, we have more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so when we have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, it helps us to relate to people so much better. We'll be able to serve others faithfully. We'll be able to listen patiently. We'll be able to learn consistently. We'll be able to repent humbly. We'll be able to open ourselves up to receive love that is otherwise very difficult for us in light of our insecurities. Number two. Alcohol is relaxing, or it gives, the, it gives the illusion of peace. It gives you a feeling of peace when there really is no peace in your life. You've probably heard the phrase before, I need a glass or two just to take the edge off, right, like after a hard day. Well, that's kind of a microcosm of what I'm talking about here. Alcohol drunkenness in particular, can serve as a means of escape from the turmoils of our lives. We've had a rough day at the office, a brutal day with the kids, a fight with our spouse, just a rough week all around. We can turn to alcohol for relief, for peace. Now, there's a sense in which that's not an entirely bad thing. Some of the ways in which the Bible speaks about alcohol, it speaks about it positively because it can gladden our hearts. But I think when the Bible speaks about it that way, it speaks about alcohol as something that supplements the gladness that we already have, right? Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding. It's because everybody is excited. We're all celebrating. We're all happy. And the wine increases the gladness that we all feel. It's not something that's meant to replace the misery that we're experiencing. The danger comes when we indulge to the point of excess, when we enter into drunkenness as a form of superficial peace. 
as temporary relief, as a way of escape from the stress of life. In contrast to this artificial escapism offered to us in drunkenness, the Spirit of God gives us a deeper and more abiding sense of peace. It gives us something so much better than what can only last for a few hours with drunkenness, if, th- if that. Listen to Romans 15. Paul tells us that we are filled with peace as Christians. Filled, same language here. Filled. In Romans 8, Paul says that if we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, we will receive peace. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace itself. That is, the more of the Spirit we have, the more this fruit grows up in us. Well, what fruit? The sense of peace that we experience. Think about even the way Paul ends all of his letters. Grace to you and peace. That's the way he introduces some of his letters. He's, that's not a throwaway line, right? That's not just something that Paul says. He's saying, because Christ has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, paid the price for your sins, you can really and truly have peace. Alcohol acts as a numbing agent. It deadens our emotions. But the the spirit doesn't deaden us. It doesn't numb us to the pain that we feel. What the spirit does is he places the promise of eternal joy before us. And that eternal joy that we lock our eyes on gives us the ability to endure the pain that we experience, to endure the suffering that we know in this fallen world. Listen to Hebrews 10.34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How did you joyfully accept this suffering without trying to escape from it? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And the Spirit puts that joy before you and allows you to persevere. At the end of the day, alcohol is a blessing from God, but because of the fall, it's a mixed blessing. A mixed blessing? Sorry, guys, had to do it. Listen to F.S. Fitzsimmons speak about this reality. I think, he, I think he says this with elegance and force. These two aspects of wine, its use and its abuse, its benefits and its curse, its acceptance in God's sight and its abhorrence, are interwoven into the fabric of the Old Testament so that on the one hand it may gladden the heart of man, Psalm 104, or on the other hand might cause his mind to err, Isaiah 28. It can be associated with merriment, Ecclesiastes 10, or with anger, Isaiah 5. It can be used to uncover the shame of Noah in Genesis 9, or in the hands of Melchizedek it can be used to honor Abraham. It's a mixed blessing. Now, in contrast to this mixed blessing that is alcohol, the blessings of the Spirit are never mixed. They're only and always good. The blessings of the Spirit only produce good in our lives, and we never have to be wary of it. We never have to feel like we are at risk. In light of the danger of these present evil days, we don't have to avoid the Spirit because it might cause us to stumble and walk less carefully. As a matter of fact, the more we fill ourselves up with the Spirit, the more carefully we walk and the wiser we become and the better stewards of our time we will be. 
Now, we should remember that the heart of Paul's teaching on drunkenness is not really about alcohol. It's really about what we're being influenced by. What are we placing ourselves under the influence of? So I think if, if we were to have Paul here this morning and, and I were to say, hey, Paul, are you just speaking about drunkenness here? He would say, well, no, I am speaking against drunkenness, but I'm speaking about anything that causes you to not be sober-minded, anything that influences you more than the influence of the Holy Spirit. So many people ask why we as Christians are uh, opposed to smoking weed. Well, it's from this verse right here. We understand drunkenness and getting high to be different in cause and expression, but the same in essence. The same thing is true regardless of the illicit substance that may cause it. And what you need to know, friends, is that there is nothing that any substance can give you that Jesus cannot give you more of. There's nothing that any substance can give you that Jesus can't give you something better of. I mean, honestly, aren't you just tired of the cheap substitutes? Aren't you just tired of temporary joy, fleeting pleasures, finding escape for a few hours? Instead of deep and meaningful physical intimacy in the covenant of marriage, this world offers us pornography. Instead of meaningful relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the flesh where we suffer together, rejoice together, forgive one another, learn from each other, so on and so forth, the world offers us online church where we just sit and watch somebody else worship and we raise our hands in our living room. We never have to see anyone or talk to anyone be confronted by anyone, be challenged by anyone, love anyone, serve anyone. Instead of deep and lasting joy and peace, this world offers us drunkenness and temporary highs. Instead of everlasting happiness with God in heaven, this world offers us a few decades, if that, of carnal pleasure, a vapor, one quick hit, and then suffering forever. Friends, you should know that we do have a sympathetic high priest. Jesus knows what it's like to live life in this fallen world. In the incarnation, God himself came down and dwelt with us in this sinful, fallen world. There's nothing that we've experienced as sufferers in this world that Jesus can't identify with, where he can't say, no, I know what that feels like. He knows how, life hard, how hard life can be. He understands your temptation to want to escape the difficulties of this life with substances. But he stands ready to give you something better. Himself. As Jesus hung on the cross to pay the price for our sins, he endured the deepest possible pain that the world has ever known. And for him, there was no escape. And as he drunk down the cup of God's wrath, he did not experience social enlightenment, peace with those who were around him. He stood there while everyone spit on him and attacked him and mocked him. And he didn't even have a sip of vinegar to relieve the pain. And he suffered the way that he did so that he could offer you a joy that is so deep and so wide 
that if you accept it, you will spend the rest of eternity plumbing it to its depths and you'll never get to the bottom. As Christians, this is both an immediate experience and then a continuing experience. So we get saved, we accept Christ, we have this immediate sense of joy, we have the the Holy Spirit coming to live in us, regenerates our hearts, but then we have this ongoing experience, which Paul calls today the idea of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not when you speak in tongues. Being filled filled with the Spirit is not when you get a special unction from the Lord to be able to do something miraculous for ministry. Being filled with the Spirit is the increasing presence of the Spirit of God in your heart and mind through your active activity in pursuing Him. Now that's kind of a mouthful, so let me explain. Well, actually, yeah, I'll get there in a second. Let's just assume that you're with me. Let's just assume that you don't come from a background where being filled with the Spirit means something crazy, okay? You're like, okay, Sean, I get it. I'm sold. I need to be constantly filling myself with the Spirit, How do I do that? Well, I think you can just sort of see it here in the text. You can see this perfect analogy, right? Paul says, do not get drunk with wine. That is, don't fill yourself up with so much wine that you're drunk, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So you can fill yourself up with one thing or the other. You can fill yourself up with wine and be drunk, or you can fill yourself up with the Spirit and grow in wisdom and live carefully and do all these other things. Okay, but how do you do that? How do you fill yourself up with the Spirit? It's like, is there like a, it's like a pump somewhere, like a station we just stop in and swipe our card? How do we do this? Well, it's interesting that Paul elsewhere in his writings talks about being filled with the Spirit by using the language of drinking, just like he uses here in contrast in this verse today. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says this. He says, we were all made to drink of the Spirit. Okay, but that's still just another metaphor. It's the same metaphor, just in somewhere else. Okay, how do I drink of the Spirit so that I'm completely full of Him and under His influence? Well, listen to Paul again, this time in Romans 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the Spirit, that is, those who are under the Spirit's influence, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. Drinking of the Spirit basically means... You, you set your mind on the Spirit. That's what you're thinking about. That's what you're focused on. The things of the Spirit are in your central plane of vision. But we still need to know what the things of the Spirit are. What do I need to set my mind on? What do I need to focus on? Well, listen to John 6.63. Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. can't be that simple, right? I mean, it just cannot be that simple. But friends, the beauty is in the simplicity. In order to be filled with the Spirit, we must be filled with the words of Jesus Christ. This phenomena of filling ourselves with the Spirit can happen in a number of different ways. So consider the way that Paul talks in Philippians 4.8. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Set your mind on these things. And all these things that he's describing, true, noble, right, lovely, excellent, these are all things of the Spirit. 
But the main way that we fill ourselves up with the spirit of Christ is by filling ourselves up with the word of Christ. And friends, that's why I'm just so incredibly thankful that we live in the time that we do where we have access to God's word ready and available to us. It has not always been so. As a church, we don't build like our entire identity around the Reformation. I think that's problematic for a few reasons. But we do celebrate the Reformation because God used the Reformation to usher in the ability for us as Christians to open up God's word and read it for ourselves. It's the reason why I'm preaching to you from an English Bible this morning and I'm preaching to you in your own language. I'm not up here reciting Latin. So as Russell has come up on several occasions and recommended this book to you, The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves, which is the story of the Reformation, if you've just thought, man, I'm not, I'm not a history person, this tells the story of how God worked in history to accomplish your ability to sit here right now, this very morning, and listen, and read, listen to and read God's word in your native tongue. It's a fascinating story of God's providential working in history for our good It's a good book. I'd encourage you to go check it out on the bookstall. Pick it up and read it. I once knew a pastor who told me that his number one question for sheep when they told him that they were feeling weak or discouraged was, how much time are you spending in the Word? Now this old wise pastor, when I first heard him say that, I remember hearing that and thinking, geez, that seems a little simplistic, you know? Life is hard. It's complicated. Is, are you reading your Bible the, the best thing that you have to offer? Is this the only answer that you have for people who are struggling and suffering? But I gotta tell you, the more time that I've spent with the Lord and the more time I've spent in ministry, particularly as a pastor of a local church, I've come to see that yes, this is the best answer. I'm not saying it's the only answer, but I am saying it is the best answer. The best thing that we can do for our souls in light of these evil days is to be filled with the Spirit. And the number one way that we fill ourselves up with the Spirit of Christ is by reading the Word of Christ. Now the careful Christian realizes this and he spends every day setting his minds on the things of Christ. The careless Christian is oblivious to this reality. Let's take a a moment to look at a case study on this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews chapter 10. I found myself having to have this conversation so often with people that I eventually just put it in the new members class. (coughs) But we'll just review it all together today. Hebrews chapter 10. Now you remember... The, the background to the book of Hebrews is these Christians from a Jewish background were being persecuted. In light of their suffering, they were considering going back to Judaism and, and leaving Christ behind. They were going to apostatize from the faith. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So, there's a danger, I'm... I'm I'm going to let go of my faith. I'm not going to be able to hold fast to it. I'm wavering. I'm suffering. I'm considering going back to my old ways and abandoning Christ in light of this suffering that I'm experiencing. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider. So stop, think about it, coordinate, work together, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
Okay, how do we do that? How do we stir one another up for love and good works so that we don't abandon the faith? Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? How can I make sure that I hold fast? Well, I have to make sure I'm in community. I have to make sure that I'm gathering together with my brothers and sisters. Now, you may be thinking, well, what does any of this have to do with being filled with the Spirit and and the reading of the Word of God? Well, it has everything to do with it, friends. When you remember that at the time that the author of Hebrews wrote this, nobody had Bibles. Nobody was walking around with their little orange Gideon's Bible in their hand. If somebody was going to hear the Word of God... They were going to hear it as they gathered together in the church, with the church, as the church. Even if you did, by chance, have a copy of the Bible, which it wouldn't have looked the same, but you get what I'm saying. I'm not trying to use anachronistic terms. If you were to, by chance, have a Bible, you would probably be illiterate. So you wouldn't even be able to read it, but you could listen. And that's why Paul tells Timothy this young pastor, as he's preparing to enter into the fullness of his ministry, he tells him that he must be devoted to the public reading of Scripture. Why? Why, Timothy, must you be devoted to the public reading of Scripture? Well, because when Christians want to be filled with the Spirit, they have to do that by listening to the words of Christ. And the main way that they do that is by when we come together as a church and God's Word is read out loud. You hear it. You're filled up and built up and strengthened in your faith. If you're a visitor this morning and you wonder why we read so much Scripture, that's just, that's just us trying to be obedient to God's command. Honestly, a little less time of me talking and a little more time of God's Word being read will probably do everyone in this room a sufficient amount of good. Until the invention of the printing press, the gathering of the church was the main, if not only, way for you to be under the influence of God's word. Listen to Justin Martyr, writing about 150 AD, describe what a typical Sunday service looked like just a generation or so after the apostles. On the day called Sunday, now it's interesting that he says it like that, but that's for another day. On a day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And friends, that's a long time. It's not like five minutes. Allison was up here reading for five minutes and I could almost feel, like even in myself, just kind of like, uh, shrinking a little bit. No, I'm talking, they would probably just read the whole book of Hebrews as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has finished, the pastor speaks, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things that they have heard. This is a word-centered church that he's describing here. So friends, do not forsake, forsake the fellowship of the Lord's day. It was God's design for you to feast on the words of Christ and so be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, praise God that you have Bibles at home. You can and should read them at home in your private times with your prayers and family devotionals. But that is not the main instrument designed by God to build up your faith. It is the local gathering. 
And next week, when we come back for part two of the sermon, we're going to see what happens when we're strengthened by God's word and when we're filled with the spirit, we're going to see how we respond. We respond by praising God, by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, and by exercising mutual submission. Come back, uh, actually it's not next week, I'll be out of town next week, the week after that for part two. But this morning we're going to end the sermon with a real life illustration of the gospel and the power of the gospel. We're going to see what it looks like when two people say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life under the influence of the spirit of God and leave the influence of this fallen world behind. So Shane, Kelly, brother, sister, come on up. Pulling from the deep well waters of scripture, our church covenant has this to say about living carefully in the world. It says, we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us now a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. Come on over, brothers and sisters. If we claim to be dead in sin through our burial with Christ and alive to the Spirit through our resurrection with Christ, then we will strive to live carefully in this fallen world. And that's what Shane and Kelly are gonna tell you about this morning. They're gonna share their testimonies and then they're going to be baptized. So, all right. And now, uh, guys, not everybody uh, gets up and stands in front of people every week and it's just totally natural doing it. So I think Kelly's just gonna read hers. So let's just all be attentive and listen carefully. All right, go ahead, sister. Good morning. Good morning. Um, throughout my childhood, I have many memories of being in church. Um, my mother was faithful to our church and always made sure that my brothers and I were there. Around the age of eight, my great uncle, who was a preacher, came to my house and sat down with my older brother and myself and presented the gospel to us soon after I was baptized. Looking back, though, I do not have confidence that I was saved at that time. I was always a rule follower, which I think can sometimes be mistakenly believed believed to be evidence of a, of a professing Christian's conversion. My heart and mind, however, had not been open to the greatness of my sin or my true need for Jesus. Shane and I got married in 2001. We began a family a couple of years later. Sorry. At that point, we began to do what seemed normal and even expected. We pursued the American dream. Many conversations were had about what we could do to get a bigger house, a newer car, all of the things that the world sees as important. We wanted our kids to have the best of everything that we could afford in this life. We were chasing many idols while truly missing on the one thing that we needed the most. In 2012, I stumbled across the blog of a high school friend who had just adopted a little girl from Ethiopia. While following their story over a few months, the Lord convicted me that this was his will for our family. While I know that adopting doesn't make you a Christian, and certainly not everyone who adopts is a Christ follower, this is how I believe the Lord started opening my eyes to the beauty of the gospel. In the years since we began the process of adopting, the Lord has used many situations and people to open my eyes to real gospel truths. This has changed everything about our family, how we live, how we interact with others, our goals, and our dreams. So as frustrating as it feels for me to say, I don't know the exact moment of my salvation, I just know that I now have been able to see how lost I was and that God saved me from my sins through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. 
I realize my desperate need for Jesus, desire to repent of my sins, and seek to live each day of my life to glorify and serve him. Thank you, Sister. Good morning. <clears throat> wow. Now I know how you feel. Um, thank you uh, for letting us share our testimonies. We are uh, blessed and grateful to uh, have the opportunity to join uh, Sixth Avenue, and we have uh, found everyone here to be very welcoming and encouraging, so we thank you for that. Um, I grew up in church. Um, uh, my grandparents uh, founded pretty much, they were, they were founding members of the church that I grew up in. Uh, my mother uh, cut the grass at the church. Uh, she cleaned inside the church. She played the piano. My grandparents led the music. Uh, I say all that to say that uh, I, I was at the church every time the door was open, and uh, my mother even worked in the youth group, so I have uh, probably have some kind of record about the number of youth conventions attended uh, because I was going to them long before I was ever uh, old enough to be a member of the youth. But um, growing up in church like that, I was very familiar with how the church worked and was taught in an early age the disciplines of the Christian life, such as prayer, Bible reading, and corporate worship. I walked the aisle at a youth event when I was in fifth grade uh, to accept Christ and be baptized. I was then baptized at my local church. Looking back, though, I feel as though I didn't truly understand what I was, what I was doing. Uh, when I remember and try to think back of the motivations uh, for wanting to be a Christian, I, f I keep coming back to the feeling that it's centered around um, wanting to avoid hell, wanting to avoid punishment. Um, I understood and believed God to be perfect and holy, but I, don't, uh, I didn't feel I fully grasped the magnitude of my sin and how that caused separation from a relationship with God. I spent um, most of my teenage years and most of my young adult life uh, attempting to do the right thing, to be a good moral person. Um, but now, in retrospect, I really saw no evidence that my desires had changed. I was really just attempting behavior modification uh, in order to look like a Christian. Around the age of 34 is when I began to form some true uh, relationships with believers at my church and through work. And it was through these discussions, debates, uh, book studies, different recommended uh, videos, Bible reading, and, and lots of their prayer that I realized that I was truly understanding the gospel for the first time. I was coming to grips with the fact that I was just fully grasping the weight of my sin and my eternal separation from God without his sovereign grace provided by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Since that time, I have felt my desires for and my joy in God increase. There's been a change in the way I view my personal relationships, my work, my family, and my possessions. I no longer see my life and my decisions as my own. My wife and I are fully committed, and I'm fully committed to serving God in all areas of my life and to serving his local church. Uh, we're committed to serving each other, our children, and others in a way that is glorifying and pleasing to God, and, and all we have is his to use. We pray that others see our lives as living testimonies to what God has done. Yeah. Thank you. Guys, I, I think what you can see from Shane and Kelly's testimony is something that we sadly see all too often in the Christian South. Because we grow up in the Bible Belt and we spend a lot of time around Christians, in churches, doing Christian-y kinds of things, we can just mistakenly assume that we are actually saved. And it's not until later on in life that we hear the true gospel. 
and we come to an understanding that we are in fact sinners and we're not better than anybody just because we're in church, that we come to understand the reality of the gospel and, and many of us are actually saved later in life even though we spent most of our lives in the church. If you're here this morning and that's you, I would just encourage you to think about that, pray through that, maybe find somebody in this church and talk about that, uh, but not to just assume that everything is okay between you and God just because you do a bunch of Christian things. With that being said, our uh, music team is going to come up and lead us in a song while we go get ready for the baptism. Uh, Steve and Spencer, will you brothers please come and move the podium as we get ready? Thanks, guys.